Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. When I began my undergraduate career at the University of North Carolina, I arrived on campus hot, sweaty, thrilled, and totally overwhelmed by everything happening around me. There were thousands of other students moving in, milling around, getting acquainted, joining clubs, going up to Franklin Street, and, of course, talking about that basketball player that they had spotted that time at the dining hall. Eventually, I settled in and started to learn basic things, like exactly how many minutes it took to walk from my dorm room to my 8 a.m. lecture. And by the time I finished my first year, I knew even more, like the fact that I wanted to study political science and that I wanted to be a researcher. But regrettably, I went all four years at UNC without actually learning the meaning of a word that I had heard thrown about by a lot of high-achieving classmates. What the heck is a Fulbright? And why do people talk about it like it's some kind of unicorn? You know, coming to UMBC has been an interesting revelation on that front because, as it turns out, we are really good at producing Fulbright scholars. It makes sense, I guess, because UMBC is kind of a unicorn of its own, isn't it? Today on Retrieving the Social Sciences, I have the good fortune to talk to someone who recently won one, Mariam El-Habashi, a recent UMBC graduate who's currently working as a researcher at Rutgers University. Because Mariam's path to a Fulbright couldn't have happened without some great institutional support, we're also going to hear from Dr. Bambi Chapin, Associate Professor of Anthropology, and Dr. Brian Souders, UMBC's Fulbright Program Advisor. During our interview, we talk about the Fulbright Program, what makes UMBC so successful at obtaining Fulbright scholarships, and of course, Mariam's fascinating research, which sits at the intersection of anthropology and public health. And along the way, we learn some of the secrets of a successful Fulbright application. Let's listen in. Thank you all so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm really excited to uh, get into a discussion a little bit of UMBC's Fulbright uh, uh, applicants and the success stories that we've had in recent times in the social sciences. Um, you know, I thought it would be kind of helpful for our audience to begin a little bit with just a general discussion of what the Fulbright program is and uh, why is it so prestigious, right? So uh, maybe Dr. Souders can, can take this question and then we can uh, bring in uh, Dr. Chapin and, and Miriam in just a moment. The Fulbright Scholarship Program is a prestigious opportunity that is funded by the U.S. State Department to allow students, um, and that could be either newly graduated undergraduates all the way through PhD students, to do one of three things. Um, they can do either an independent research project for an academic year um, of their own design. They can earn a master's degree um, in one of about 30 countries throughout the world, or alternately, they can teach English as a foreign language in about 80 countries throughout the world. So uh, the State Department like calls it its flagship exchange program for not just for academic exchange, but also for cross-cultural exchange to get um, young 
American students out to um, sort of show the best and brightest that America has to offer. Um, and the Fulbright Student Program is just one part of the um, Fulbright Program. There's, of course, the inbound international students that come to the United States um, to earn degrees here. And as, of course, the faculty side, where faculty can, uh, both international faculty members can come to the U.S. and U.S. faculty members um, to go overseas to teach or do research. The thing that I really like about the program is that it is prestigious, but it's not elitist. Fulbright really wants the um, its cohort of students to look like America. I want to express the uh, show the um, American experience and show the broad face of America to the rest of the world. Wow, America's best and brightest. Yep. America's diversity. You know, I, I'm really thinking about this sort of description of the Fulbright program, and I'm realizing that I've heard this before, right? It sounds a little bit like UMBC. Um, and maybe that has something to do with why we're something of a Fulbright super producer, according to some of our language. Um, tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Sutters. What, what does this mean? And why does it happen that our students are so good at winning these Fulbrights? There's sort of two real strengths that I think that UMBC has besides our amazing students. So the first, I think, is the training and research methods. So our students across the university, you know, one of the things that that we emphasize in many programs and certainly in the anthropology program and in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology and Public Health, and I think throughout the social sciences is that students aren't just learning about what other researchers have done. They are researchers. They're junior researchers. They are learning the methods of social science. Um, they're learning. So for our case in anthropology, they're, they're practicing in their coursework, interviewing, um, observation, uh, reflection. They're not just reading published work. They are themselves beginning to be producers of that work. And that really sets them up to prepare research proposals in particular um, for that Fulbright. Um, and, and then the other thing I would say is that our students um, get a lot of support. You know, I actually had a Fulbright when I was doing my dissertation research in Sri Lanka, and I remember my interview, and it was very nice conversation. They asked me things like, do you think you're mature enough? I was like, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that was my interview. Here, the process is much more intensive. Mm -hmm. And that interview, that on-campus interview with faculty is really a panel of faculty that are giving students all sorts of advice about how to craft a project. You know, even though they've already put together this wonderful project now, like how to take it apart, re-put it back together, what we see as strengths, um, and then supporting them and encouraging them as they go through that really difficult intellectual work, emotional work of figuring out um, how to make their strong projects even stronger so that when they get past the university, they are, they have these just, you know, amazing, impressive uh, portfolios to present. That is so fantastic. And, you know, it really resonates, I think, with some of the other episodes that we've had on the podcast, right? We think about some of the episodes where we've highlighted the work of uh, students uh, at ERCAD, uh, for example. I mean, really, um, Dr. Chapin, your insights, I think, really speak to the strength of UMBC as a school that uh, really focuses on, on undergraduate research as a point of emphasis. Um, yeah, Dr. Satters, you wanted to maybe add something to that? So, and, and just to segue off of that is that especially the work done by uh, Dr. April Householder in both with ERCAD and with the um, URA awards um, is just a fantastic way for our students who already are strong researchers 
uh, to be able to take that research to the next level to a global stage. And I always tell our applicants that if you are if you have applied for ERCAD or if you have um, or for a URA award, you are already leaps and bounds ahead um, in this process of, of putting together a competitive Fulbright application. So, um, and Dr. Chapin alluded to the process that we have to get our students to the um, to the end goal of, of having a successful application. Um, so we spend over the course of the summer, I spend a lot of time working both in groups and one-on-one -on -one with students. So as part of the application cycle, we have what's called Fulbright boot camps, And those are intensive workshops that are uh, done in May, June, and July that sort of give students the tools to be able to help them understand this unique set of writing that for many of whom, this is the first time they've done this kind of a scholarly application before. So to make sure that they have together this, these tools that will make them successful in putting an application together. There's a lot of, of iterative work for me, like reading drafts and giving them feedback so that I, as what I call the educated non-expert, will be able to understand their, um, make sure that what they are writing is something that is going to be understandable to a panel of educated non-experts. So, and that is frequently, um, of course, our amazing faculty um, and staff panels that that sit in on our who do interview the students um, as part of the application process and give them that critical feedback that takes an already solid application and makes it even better. So that by the time it goes off to the national selection committees, um, our, our students' applications are stellar. Can, can I ask, are those boot camps, is that something that you came up with? Is that something that's done all over? Should we keep that a secret? It is not a secret. I have actually presented on this, uh, this model um, that I, I would, I, I kind of want to think I came up with it. I don't think it's necessarily that I came up with it, but um, it's something that we've been doing now for, I think this is the seventh year that I've been doing them. And it makes, there's two ways that I think it's super helpful. It's group advising. So basically it's group, it's helping students sort of see this at a group level that this is how you can put together a competitive proposal and one. But what's also helpful is it creates a cohort of students who, who historically have been like, I would tell them, go, go write. How hard could this be? So, and then what I discovered actually is really hard so when you actually get the group of students together to ask questions and sort of suss through the problems that they might be having is putting their proposals together, they realize like, oh yeah, there's a group of us to do this. We're sort of this group of mutual support that's gonna help you get through this intellectual challenge. So, um, so it makes it great. I think it's a, a tremendously helpful resource for the students to be able to recognize they're going through this together. And I really think that is another strength that UMBC has that plays out in the Fulbright application process, which is, mm. I think in lots of different contexts, our students see each other as not as competitors, but as collaborators. You know, one of us at least is this, right? We're going to work together on this. Um, we're going to support and learn from each other. And I've just been really impressed by that across all sorts of different, um, you know, whether it's classrooms or um, study groups, it, it across the disciplines. Um, and, and I really, I really value that and, and think that's a wonderful thing for our students themselves. I also think 
one of the things that you do, you know, if we take this idea of cultural capital, right, <laughs> that we talk about in the social sciences, uh, you know, do you have the cultural capital to leverage? And, and you know, at some more, perhaps more elite, expensive schools, <laughs> uh, students come in with, uh, with, you know, parents who are grant writers or whatever, and then they have this advantage at home, but it doesn't mean that their projects are any better, right? It doesn't mean that they have more to contribute. That grant writing project is a skill. And if you've never done it before, and if you don't happen to have the personal resources, it is, I think, a tremendous asset that UMBC provides that to all the students because it's it's not you know it's not magic uh it's not it, it is it's a formula it's a process and you can learn it and then your ideas can really develop um and i think that's one of the things that happens and to follow off on that the way that I, that we describe this grant writing process is basically i think it's a nine piece puzzle here are the nine pieces so and for those of us who have been working with this kind of writing for years, it's natural. But for um, many of our students, this is the first time they're doing this. And they they sometimes just look at the enormity of it all and get overwhelmed. And I was like, no, you're basically writing nine paragraphs to put together. This is very much a doable project. Just take it one little bit at a time. And, I, and my job here is to make sure that you feel supported and I can give you as much feedback that you, in coordination with your academic advisors and your faculty members who actually know your topic, can put something together that's going to be that's going to show just how amazing you are as a student and how great our students are in general. Wow. Well, Dr. Souders, Dr. Chapin, thank you so much for sharing some of the uh, hidden secrets of <laughs> uh, UMBC's success in this in this in this field. Um, you know, I really wanted to talk a little bit to, to Miriam as well. I want to bring her into the discussion and um, talk a bit about um, this project um, that that she's been working on. That's I think a fantastic example um, of of the kind of project that UMBC students have been so successful in bringing to the Fulbright program. So, um, Miriam, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit just about your uh, experience at UMBC? Obviously, you're a recent graduate, um, and uh, I want to know a little bit about um, your course of study at UMBC, uh, the kinds of research that you did during your time here, and maybe how that informed uh, what you're doing now. Of course. So uh, coming into UMBC, I decided to be an anthropology major. Uh, I think I was like maybe overzealous. I remember coming to Dr. Chapin's office uh, earlier uh, in the summer before I actually began and was like, very excited about pursuing anthropology and I knew that I wanted to, you know, hopefully incorporate anthropology into medicine as a career goal of mine. Um, and so I pursued that. Um, as far as the anthropological studies themselves, I can't speak highly enough to the department itself. Um, you guys were talking about the strengths of UMBC students and I think so much of that actually is rooted in the faculty themselves and the support that they give to their students and just the extent of community. I mean, I can't speak to all the departments because I was part of the anthropology department. Um, but my experience with the anthropology department was very much um, one of great support and a very tight-knit community. Um, and I think that, that really fostered a lot of um, my faith in my ability to do research and my um, faith in the uh, implications of the research that I was doing and the importance of it. Um, so with that, I actually began doing research with Dr. Chard. Um, she reached out to me I believe it was my sophomore year, about a project she was doing uh, among the African-American elderly community in Baltimore City, and she was exploring diabetes and sort of um, the overlap with physical activity among the elderly in Baltimore. And so I happily joined on with that. 
Um, and that was a great experience really in just learning how to listen to the people that you're interviewing and um, seeing a lot of times people refer to um, people that they're studying as like subjects, but very much um, for me it was listening to just people's stories, um, learning what I could from them and being able to maybe draw from those conversations and create a larger discussion that is more, you know, um, I guess targeted to like an academic sort of community. Um, following that, I also worked with Dr. Jones Lewis in the ancient medicine um, faculty department. And she was really great in just helping me formulate um, my own sort of project. Uh, I did a project with her, it was called Establishing the Contributions of Arab Medical Theorists. And it was a comparison of Galen and Ibn Sina, or who he's more, you know, popularly known as Avicenna. Um, so that was my first sort of independent research project. And I presented that at ERCAD my sophomore year. And that sort of um, created a platform for me to, you know, do more research, especially going into my capstone year. So my junior year, I did a capstone. Um, and I always, again, uh, going back to my freshman year, I always wanted to explore the overlap between anthropology and medicine, or maybe just the social sciences and medicine. Um, so with that, I knew that going into my capstone, I wanted to explore something that kind of had those two elements. Um, and I decided to explore cupping and wellness among the Muslim women in the Baltimore, Washington area. Cupping is a practice that um, has sort of some medical significance in the Muslim community. And I wanted to explore that as something that's seen especially in the Western culture, something that's almost more pseudoscientific. And I wanted to see how that um, sort of impacted perceptions of these Muslim women who do, you know, have obviously this belief in hegema, but who also are very much part of the um, American patient population who are seeking healthcare through these more, you know, conventional um, pathways. So I did that research for my capstone. Um, and I actually carried that into my honors thesis with the help of Dr. Chapin, um, who was really great in sort of helping me expand that into a national study. So I was interviewing, I mean, it was COVID, so I wasn't, you know, traveling and like meeting all these new people, but I was reaching out to um, people across the country and doing interviews virtually through that. And again, it was a great learning experience to be able to, you know, create these novel uh, sort of methods to approaching research, especially in a time where there were so many like limitations. Right. Um, and so with the hegemony research, I actually, that was what opened up the door to my first Fulbright application. So I applied twice. Um, my first Fulbright application was to Turkey. Um, and, you know, with the help again of Dr. Chapin and Dr. Souders, I decided that I wanted to explore cupping or as it's known in the Muslim community, it's called hegemony. So I wanted to explore that in Turkey. Um, Turkey's kind of like the Mecca of cupping to many people. And I wanted to um, expand my research to see, you know, how the perceptions maybe differ or how they overlap um, among the Muslim community in the US and then in Turkey. Um, I did that application. Uh, it was, again, great learning experience. I didn't get it. Um, it was disappointing, obviously, for, you know, a few days. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't know lots of Turkish. Um, there were obviously, you know, major weaknesses as far as the language ability as someone who wanted to do anthropological research, you know, hypothetically interviewing a lot of people. Um, so I decided, you know, going to get over it, maybe apply a year after that. And um, this past, it was October. I hadn't started an application yet, and I received an email from Dr. Souders like, what are you doing? Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I actually hadn't over the course of that year, I hadn't really given too much thought to applying again because I thought, you know, it's a dead end. I'm not going to be doing cupping research in Turkey. Um, and I hadn't really thought of how I could, you know, create another project within that same sort of 
you know, research area. It's like very niche. And I just thought, you know, so that was a dead end. So we'll, you know, move on. Um, but Dr. Souders really gave me that push to be like, no, like you have to believe in the goals that you have. And there are so many manifestations of these projects that you can do and you can pursue and you can pursue them successfully. And so with that, I changed gear and sort of decided to um, take my um, sort of interests to Kuwait, where I do know the language. I do speak Arabic um, and I did change the lens uh, of the research that I was doing. So it's still within the framework of medicine and anthropology, but I just shifted it a little bit to explore. Um, sort of the trends of obesity among the women, the female population in Kuwait did that application and luckily was um, able to, you know, I'm going to be able to pursue that opportunity this coming year. Mary, will you remind us what the title of your project is? Yeah, so the project itself is called Faith, Family, Food and Fitness, Exploring Trends of Obesity Among Kuwaiti Women. What a great lesson for our listeners, right? I mean, not only the the perseverance that you've demonstrated in doing this twice, and uh, obviously Dr. Souders was pretty instrumental as well in sort of pushing this along, I think. Um, but obviously, the 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 success that you've seen that you've seen with this uh, most recent application is also, I think, a testament to the incredible volume of research that you did while you're at UMBC. Um, I mean, I I think back to my undergraduate experience, and you know, doing doing maybe even one of those <laughs> things would uh, count as sort of a major, major uh, step forward uh, for, for somebody like me back in, in the early 2000s. Um, so it seems like, you know, you're, you're uh, really just uh, pushing the envelope here in terms of the amount of research that's possible uh, during an undergraduate degree. But hey, maybe that's just UMBC. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's, uh, that's uh, par for the course or if, um, if this is uh, really something, something uh, uh, impressive. But I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, this is really cool research. And um, I, I think that the Fulbright program, uh, was was right on to to choose this as something to to decide to fund in the the uh, next year. One of the things that I think is so impressive about um, the way that Miriam stuck with this, but mm -hmm. didn't like errat she wasn't like erratically switching from this to that or right. doggedly just pursuing one you know narrow pathway. You know, in that final project, you hear kind of the threads of other opportunities that she had, not just, it wasn't just, I did my capstone project and I'll just keep building on that. That'll be my one little area of expertise is like, what are the fundamental questions? What are the questions about how do, how do women, uh, which has been this theme in, in much of her own research, how do people at particular places in the life course understand their own health, pursue it, craft it, you know, take advantage of different kinds of tools available to them, even if those tools are in different domains of life, whether that's fitness or biomedicine or cupping, um, and then, you know, use them agentively and really tracking that and honoring that process as, as a, um, as a witness and an analyst, and then amplifying that. And I just, I, I think that's very impressive. And obviously it takes a lot of encouragement as well. So, uh, so grateful to have Dr. Souders do that for our students. And not let them just kind of feel like, okay, well, that was it. So, and thank you for that, Dr. Chapin. It's it's fun. One of the things that I enjoy is, of course, celebrating when our students get these awards. But a lot of the time, it is like this is a nationally competitive award, and I basically think that. In reality, that many of our students who do apply, who have amazing projects, they still can't get funded. There simply isn't enough money for everybody who has an amazing project. So frequently knowing that uh, my job is to sort of encourage students who might have had a great project, but it didn't go forward 
Like, okay, well, let's try it again. Fulbright doesn't care if you apply again. Every, every year is a 100% brand new competition cycle. And let's take the lessons you learned from the first time and let's try it again. And it could be a similar project. It could be a slightly different project. And I have found that a non-insignificant number of people who didn't get it the first time around, if they apply the second time around, can usually get it. So that makes me very, very happy to be able to no. celebrate that victory with them. One of the things that makes me confident about encouraging students to think about applying for the Fulbright and for other kinds of opportunities like this, given all the support that we have, no, I know that most of them won't get it. And yet I think there's something valuable to be learned along the way. And so I wonder, I wonder, Dr. Satters and Miriam, could you speak about like you know, Mariam, if you didn't get it, what you would have learned that would you could have still uh, benefited from? And Dr. Sadas, what do you see people taking away who, who don't get these projects? What happens, what happens along the way? Well, I can speak to my experience having not gotten the Fulbright the first time. I think um, that it really forced me to uh, really formulate a full idea of a research project from start to finish. I think that for most of my undergraduate experience, I was either just part of an ongoing project that was being done, or I was sort of just going with the flow of research that I was doing. And I hadn't, I had never really had to give a full synopsis of what I was doing from start to finish, especially before I had started the research. So, especially, I think in the social science, I mean, with, you know, like more biomedicine or the biomedical field, you can easily sort of chart what you're going to do and what you expect the results to be um, with social sciences, because, you know, you're working with people and not like you know, more predictable things, um, it can be kind of difficult to um, give a full uh, sort of, I guess, outline of what you plan to do and what you expect to get as an outcome. Um, so I think that the Fulbright experience, especially doing all that writing, I learned a great deal about sort of, you know, um, being ambitious with your research goals, but also being able to frame them in a way that is feasible and that is, um, you know, something that can be funded and something that can be um, you know, supported by people who are maybe not fully experts, but who do understand um, sort of what can be expected from that research project in, in and of itself, they can sort of gauge whether it's feasible or infeasible. Um, so that was definitely a huge learning process for me. Um, and with the personal statement too, learning how to talk about oneself is always something that I think, uh, even, you know, with the icebreakers and undergrad and, you know, beyond um, sort of uh, knowing how to present yourself as without being cocky and without, you know, sort of denigrating the work that you've already done, I think was also a great learning experience and I would do it. I'm probably going to be doing it over and over again. So that was a great first go at it. <laughs> to follow up on Miriam's point. Um, yeah, fully probably 2 thirds of our students who uh, apply aren't going to get it. And I do surveys of students after they've gone through the process and it's like, what kinds of things did you gain from this? Did you feel that this process was worthwhile? And overwhelmingly they tell me, absolutely. They found the ways to be able to talk at a non-expert level about their research to a broad audience. They were able to come out of this and be able to tell their story, their personal story as to what got them interested in whatever it is that they plan to research. Um, some have said, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get the award, but then I used 90% of what I wrote. I used it for my grad school applications and I got a fully funded doctoral program to do this. Or 
I have been able to use this and get a scholarship to do something else. So I've gained this lifelong skill that is going to be able to help me to do, you know, applying for jobs, applying for other um, other educational or other funding opportunities down the line. So it's very much if you don't get it, it's a transferable skill. And if you and if you decide that you want to continue on with this global opportunity, hey, apply again. I'm more than happy to work with you. And Fulbright is more than happy to read your application again and hopefully give it a favorable view the second time around. You know, one of the things that I love seeing students do as they work through the Fulbright process that I think is valuable for everyone is to really imagine a future that is ambitious, that is um adventurous, right? <laughs> that that really you're crafting yourself. And even if you don't do it in this exact way, I feel like having that, having people take that seriously, um, having getting yourself to take that seriously and to change like uh the sort of vague fantasy into a real practical plan that then you know, you may or may not do that exact practical plan, but what are the parts of it you like? What are you going to craft for yourself? And I, I feel like that in and of itself can be incredibly valuable for people. So often I have students who are so confused about uh, the, the big picture of their research and of their long-term sort of goals. Uh, I, I had a, a student uh, of mine a few semesters ago who one of my very favorite <laughs> students would always come to me and say dr anson dr anson help i'm lost in the sauce and i always think of that phrase that he would use all the time lost in the sauce as as a great um sort of uh, example of sort of where students often are when they're thinking about uh, their research and their futures and it sounds to me like this fulbright application experience is a great way to emerge <laughs> from the sauce unscathed, right? Um, and really start to uh, get a feel, as we've said, right, not just for the trajectory of maybe our career path or of our um, sort of professionalization in research, but also just of thinking about the broadest ideas that we care the most about, right? Uh, I mean, Miriam, it seems like, you know, the your journey that you've described here, you know, in the various research projects that you pursued at UMBC and beyond have really helped to shape kind of um, a, a, an overarching passion for very specific topics that um, you can study in a variety of different ways. And I think that that really is the hallmark of a really mature researcher and something that is uh, really commendable. Thanks. It's not to say that I haven't been lost in the sauce ever. It's <laughs> a sure. lot of sauce. But yeah, it's definitely um, been incredible to be part of so many. Pro I mean, it's not to say that I don't, I haven't been, I think, a part of a great diverse sort of, you know, body of work. Um, but I think that I've been able, I hope that I've been able to establish sort of like Dr. Tapin said, a through line with the projects that I've been lucky enough to be a part of and been lucky uh, enough to pursue. And hopefully that sort of shows. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is so great about the Fulbright opportunity for those who receive these fellowships in whatever that is, whether it's research or teaching or or, um, or studying, is is really a chance to engage internationally. You know, our so much of our work is relevant to and drawn from and engaged with a global community of scholars, of, of people, right? Um, and yet, when we think about what are you going to do after school, it's often uh, pretty practical, pretty close to home. And this is really a chance to imagine something larger. And, you know, one of the things that I would go back and tell myself as an undergrad, and I really want for our undergrads, 
is to learn the languages, right? <laughs> to, yeah. to learn something that you can really use. And, you know, I think part of what Miriam discovered is that she put together a really banging project <laughs> first to go around, but she doesn't really speak Turkish, right? So you can't really, how are you, you know, are people gonna take a chance that you're gonna be able to learn it on the fly? Um, that the kind of crash courses are going to be helpful. I was lucky that people trusted that I'd be able to do that with Sinhala and Sri Lanka. So it can work, but it is, you know, we have these language requirements and I think students sometimes see them as a sort of stumbling block rather than a real opportunity to prepare to do some international engagement and some engagement at home as well. I would love to share a my favorite story of the first student that I ever worked with on a Fulbright. So before I actually became UMBC's Fulbright program advisor, it was a a guy who um, kind of came to UMBC um, as a he was a humanities scholar. So and it was an American studies and he American studies major. His research project came from his semester that he spent in um, Buenos Aires in Argentina. And um, when, so, and we worked back and forth and I, at that point, kind of knew what I was doing as a Fulbright um, advisor, um, but coached him through the process. And when he got it, um, his, uh, he let, he shared with me that the story of his, when he told his aunt, who was kind of his cheerleader in the background to say, uh, and, and her response to this was, oh, Jack, your life is going to be so different now. Hmm. Um, and it was. So he had this amazing experience, um, came back, got admitted to um, an anthropology doctoral program at some place you may have heard of the University of Chicago. And just and I actually was thrilled this past uh, May to attend virtually his dissertation defense. So now Dr. Malie is off to do whatever it is that PhDs in anthropology from the University of Chicago do. Such great anecdotes. And, you know, I really think that this whole conversation has hopefully served to encourage our audience to uh, think about perhaps applying to the Fulbright in the future, but also for those uh, who are maybe not uh, in a position to, to apply to really, again, think broadly about their um, future research endeavors and uh, all the exciting things that they might be able to do, um, given uh, a little bit of thought about their through line, as Miriam put it so well. Miriam, before we let you go, why don't you tell us a little bit about the practical details of the project? So when do you leave and uh, when will we be able to wish you off uh, with, uh, with Fanfare? Funny you say that because I'm actually still not sure exactly when I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm currently in talks with obviously lots of people at the, the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait um, and with the professor who has been kind enough to um, help me get an affiliation through the Kuwait University. Uh, we're thinking sometime mid to late September is when I'll be leaving because that's when uh, universities reopen in Kuwait. Um, as far as the practical details of the project, I'm hoping, I mean, I doubt it'll go exactly as I've planned it, sure. but I'm hoping to, you know, just get to Kuwait, maybe settle for a couple of weeks before, you know, really getting out, um, checking out the universities there, or not the universities, but, you know, the students who attend the universities there, um, get to know some of hopefully the places that I can access as field sites for my research, you know, might be going to some gyms, checking out some, you know, libraries where, you know, groups might be meeting um, to sort of talk about their approaches to health and well-being. Um, you know, getting to know some people who can hopefully help me, um, you know, be a part of their stories and uh, contribute to a larger body of work that can 
um, hopefully, you know, bring us to a better um, healthcare provisions for, you know, people of all different backgrounds and cultures. But um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'll have a final date for leaving because that's, you know, a big part of the itinerary. Um, but yeah, that's generally the overall arching goal for me um, to be able to, you know, go September, arrive 10 months later. So June the following year. Um, and yeah. Well, Mariam, I'm sure that I speak for both of our esteemed panelists and all of our listeners in wishing you the very best on this project. We're very excited to see what uh, what happens next, and hopefully you'll be able to come back uh, in a little over a year, and we'll be able to talk about uh, what you found and uh, hopefully some really great experiences. Thank you so much. I hope so as well. And thank you so much, Dr. Chafin and Dr. Souders, for telling us uh, so much about the Fulbright Program at UMBC. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Now it's time for Campus Connections, a part of the podcast where we connect today's feature to other work happening at UMBC. Today, I'm turning things over to Sophia, who's been learning about some of the other great Fulbright-sponsored projects that UMBC social science students have undertaken in recent times. I'm really excited to learn about more of these awesome students, Sophia. What did you find out? In this week's installment of Campus Connections, we're covering three more amazing social science research projects that will be going international in the coming year. First off is the work of recent alumni Adriana Marie Urbina Ruiz. Urbina Ruiz graduated in 2021 with a degree in mathematics and a Master of Arts in teaching with a focus on secondary education. She'll be spending her Fulbright year in Colombia simultaneously teaching students English and creating a collaborative online international learning program. The goal of this program is to connect students at her host university with students in Maryland. Aside from furthering their education, her work strives to uplift Hispanic students in academic spaces. Caleb Jacobson graduated in 2021 with a bachelor's degree in global studies and is currently pursuing a master's degree in sociology. He's set to graduate UMBC in 2023 and will leave for El Salvador shortly after to begin his Fulbright research. He plans to study the country's transition to peace post-conflict with a focus on human rights. Finally, Social Science Fulbrights weren't just awarded to students, but to UMBC faculty as well. Tiffany Thames Copeland, a professor in the Africana Studies Department, will study the modern African diaspora in Ghana, specifically those who returned to the country in the 21st century Back to Africa movement. Her research will focus on the experience of these returnees, as well as their impacts on globalization, culture, and the fight for liberation. Thanks, Sophia, for that great review. It sounds like these students have asked and answered some fantastic social science questions in recent times. I hope you are as inspired as I am by these success stories and that you keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson. Our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno and our production intern is Jefferson Rivas. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu.
And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent UMBC events. Until next time, keep questioning.